Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl, as most of you probably know, is the podcaster behind the 30 Love podcast, which has gone into overdrive the last week or so for the U.S. Open. So if you haven't already checked that out, be sure to look at the 30 Love podcast and all the great guests he's had in the last couple weeks. And before that, I think you're up to 80 episodes or something now. Is that right, Carl? Yeah, it's hard to keep track because it is moving fast during the Open. It is moving alarmingly fast. If I, if, if I reliably listen to your podcast, then I would have a really hard time catching up someday. Fingers crossed. So and that is an endorsement for my co-host. It is, yeah. I, um, I I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, so if I were to listen to one every episode, it would be Carl's, no question about it. There's a lot of tennis to talk about since we are in the middle or just past the midpoint of the U.S. Open. We are recording this on Tuesday morning, so the round of 16 is complete. We've not seen any quarterfinal action yet. By the time you listen to this, the quarterfinals might be underway, but just to give you an idea of what we're talking about and why we might appear not to know things that are abundantly obvious to you, the listener, the first biggest story has to be Roger Federer, and we're really selling out this week. We're going to talk about Federer, we're going to talk about Sharapova, we're going to talk about Nadal, Djokovic, Serena, all the big names that draw the listeners. That's our focus today. Roger Federer lost to John Millman in the fourth round of the U.S. Open last night. Four sets, Federer had some difficulties in the heat. Carl, you watched this match live. What happened here? What Federer says is what you just said, that the heat plus the humidity plus lack of circulation in a rooftop, the not roof-closed Arthur Ashe Stadium did him in. That said, he, he did have some chances they didn't take. He was up 5-4, 40-15 on his serve in the second set. So if he had won one of the next two points, he'd be up two sets to none. And it's probably a lot easier to deal with heat and humidity when you know you only have to play one more set when you know you've got two or three ahead of you. And he got broken in pretty ugly fashion, got broken again, lost that set. And then he had a set point in the tiebreaker of the third set, got a second serve, dumped, I think, a forehand into the net. So could have won that match in straight sets, and it would have been just a sort of side note, oh, Roger looked pretty ugly there, but got through. Uh, Instead, he lost sets two, three, and four, and did so returning incredibly poorly, even by his poor standards in 2018, and playing some odd tactics that Millman figured out pretty quickly, like hitting a lot of drop shots, 10 points, and they did end more and more with Millman passing shot winners, serve and volleying more than usual in a way that became predictable and not very effective, and hitting double faults in big moments, including in the fourth set tiebreaker. He said afterward, at a certain point, you just want the match to end. And if he did want the match to end, that was the most efficient way to end it quickly in the fourth set. <laughs> yeah, that's not something you want to hear your, your hero saying he was thinking during a match. The first thing you mentioned was the circulation in Ash. And I, we've heard a number of complaints from players. I mean, the first time Nadal went out there, he was... He wanted a, f- a fan, I think, um, better ventilation. 
people have complained about it on Armstrong as well. Do you think that's just a function of the heat? I mean, is, is circulation always going to be bad when it's this hot? Or is this something the U.S. Open should be looking at fixing going forward? That's a great question. I really felt it last night. And I'd been there all day. And it was incredibly hot and humid during the day. And I expected a little bit of relief for the night matches. And I felt worse in Ash. Armstrong has big fans near uh, on attached to the roof structure and it created a nice breeze and was probably helpful to the players too and in general just has a more open structure it feels like so it, it's something worth exploring I mean it's such a delicate and distinctive roof structure that they've built over ash I don't know how many options they have yeah the, I would hope that Armstrong would be better at dealing with the heat than Ash, just because Armstrong was was purpose built. A, it was purpose purpose built for tennis, but it was it was designed knowing there would be a roof. So that's a problem that hopefully the designers were keeping in mind, knowing that it can be this hot in New York around Labor Day. And in Ash, the roof is just an afterthought relative to the original design. So. It would make sense. But yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly an, a topic that I don't expect to go away anytime soon. It's, it's something they're going to have to look at. Now, the other thing you mentioned was it was the opportunities Federer had that he didn't capitalize on, like 40-15, serving for the second set, having a set point in a tiebreak later on. This has been a recurring theme for, I don't know, at least five years. I remember I wrote something in, I think, 2013, whichever year he lost to Robredo. Uh, the big story was how 2013, many... 2013, yeah. Yeah, the, the big story was how many breakpoints he was squandering. And my initial reaction whenever I hear something like that is you have to look at the denominator. Like, okay, it's not good to have a bad breakpoint conversion ratio, but if you have a bad breakpoint conversion ratio because you're generating so many breakpoints, that's not that bad. I mean, I, I, I'd rather... What matters is the numerator, how many, how many actual breaks you're recording. But in Roger's case here and with the Robredo example as well, it was both. Like he, he had a lot of opportunities. He didn't capitalize on enough of them and put it all together and you have a guy who's not converting when he should be. So do you think this is just a blip or is, is this a recurring problem for Roger? Is it, is, does he have a tough time converting in these pressure moments? You know, I think we look at that stat when he loses and not when he wins. So I, I think it's a little bit skewed. Even last night he was three or going into this morning, three for eleven on break points, twenty seven percent, but only won thirty one percent of receiving points. So he was not really much worse on break points. I think the thirty one percent is the much more important number, not only because it represents a much greater sample, it's much more stable, but also because that's how you get the break points, is winning, receiving points, giving yourself chances. And it's been a real problem for him in 2018, at least since the Australian Open. He's not returning serve well, even against guys who don't serve that big. Millman was serving in the 110s, and he hit some, some good second serves. But then again, Federer this year has been making guys who don't have big serves look like they're serving big. Like I think our our reaction of, oh, good serve, is often colored by what the returner does. And 
Federer just isn't doing much on return, and it was really glaring last night. I think people were really picking on his serving woes because he hit a lot of double faults and he missed a lot of first serves too. But I was really struck by how few chances he was generating, especially later in the match when it seemed like Millman was holding regularly at love and 15. Do you think that his return is noticeably worse than it was last year? Yeah, and I think statistically too. Like I've looked at percent of return games won and where he ranks on that set as well in the ATP, and it's it's down significantly. So that's something that's going to stand in the way, and it, as, as you point out, it's going to make your breakpoint conversion rate look pretty bad because, as you point out, like you, you want to be converting more than 20% of, 27% of breakpoints, but if you barely win more return points than that, that's a lot to ask. So the bigger concern might be the moments like that 5-4, uh, you know, the one thing he can always do, except for the end of the match last night, is serve well. So... It's it, he has given himself less of a margin of error. He he needs to convert those games. So you mentioned that some of the some of the good things that Millman did last night. He wasn't serving big, but some good second serves. What I always wonder in cases like this is obviously Federer was not at his best. Even if you're just talking about 2018 Federer, not career greatest of all time conversation Federer. This is not the best Federer we could hope for. Maybe it was all because of the heat. Whatever the reason, Federer was vulnerable last night. Does that mean he would have been vulnerable to anybody? Or was Millman doing anything that you think gave him the edge that maybe other players wouldn't have been able to capitalize on? I think Millman is an outlier in his fitness and training, and that was a big deal last night. Like, if... Federer was wilting in the weather, but so is his opponent, then advantage Federer. And Milman, Federer mentioned this himself, Milman has a really good backhand, and it was particularly good last night. And when Federer's trying to shorten points and, and spare himself the oppressive heat, and he's attacking the backhand as he's prone to do, he set up a lot of Millman passing shot winners. So more broadly, Millman is just so solid from the baseline that if Federer was going to end the point quickly, or if, or if Federer was going to get points to end quickly, he was going to have to do it. And often he was doing it by hitting errors or by setting up Millman for winners because he wasn't getting unforced errors from the other side. So I, I think it was a, a tough opponent on the night. Like if he was facing a big server you know, average rally length of two or three, then I think he would have had a much better chance. Okay, that's interesting. It's interesting what you say about the fitness. I've never, I, I honestly I don't know a lot about John Millman. I mean, it, it, you see his name on the ranking table. I know he was injured for a long time and has had a, a strong recovery this season. I think he's at, <clears throat> pardon me, at or near his career best ranking. And of course, that'll be considerably better next Monday. But the fitness is an interesting point. Uh, one thing I've read... I've read about Delpo a couple of times is that I, I, I wish I could remember the source on this, but, but a coach made the comment that, that Delpo he, in all of his injury layoffs, he should be coming back as the fittest guy on tour because when you do have a layoff and you can work out, then you don't have a lot else to do. You're not traveling all the time. You're not, you're not playing matches that are going to massively drain you. All you have time to do is get in really, really good shape. And Delpo's never done that. 
but it sounds like maybe Millman has, and like you'd expect that to pay off to some extent, and maybe that's why he's had his maybe his best year. Um, but I doubt he would have expected it to to pay off in in this at this big of a stage. Yeah, Darren Cahill on the broadcast said that Millman used to run. 15k before training sessions and then started getting shin splints so he stopped but that was his warm-up exercise yeah wow i ran 15k yesterday and that was my warm-up exercise for having some tortilla chips and sitting (laughs) um okay so let let's let's close the loop on on federer millman and Looking ahead just a little bit, I want to come back to the overall men's draw later on. But since we're talking about Milman, now he gets the draw against Novak Djokovic. That's your that's your prize for beating Roger Federer. You get to come back in 48 hours and play someone who's probably even better right now. Um, do you think Milman has any chance of knocking out Djokovic? The match that everyone thought was going to be the showcase Wednesday night match between Federer and Djokovic now could even be a Wednesday afternoon match. It's not going to be as hot on Wednesday, but if Djokovic does not like the conditions, which he hasn't at several points in this tournament, maybe that gives Milman another chance to be the the player from what Federer called maybe the most humid place on earth, Brisbane, Australia. Uh, otherwise, maybe Novak gets injured. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to see... Milman using his same advantages over Novak because I can't think of anything he does better than Novak. So it it reminds me of matchups between let's so let's say Djokovic and Ishikori. Djokovic seems to have the edge in that match because he does just about everything better against Murray in recent years most of the time as well. And Milman isn't in the same category as Ishikori or Murray. So, yeah, I, I I would expect straight sets for Djokovic. Yeah, so even though we were both leaning Djokovic in the Djokovic-Federer hypothetical match, yeah, it seems like a, a, a big benefit to Djokovic. If only, I mean, if it goes well, I mean, if, if Djokovic doesn't have problems in the conditions, it'll save him some some wear and tear, maybe. One uh, funny tweet I just saw a little bit before we started recording this was from Darren Ravel, and he he had looked on StubHub both before and after the Federer upset at what the Wednesday Wednesday night tickets were looking like. And uh, perhaps needless to say, there's a lot more availability now if you're thinking of checking out the men's quarterfinals on Wednesday. Uh, it's a dramatic difference between Fed Djokovic and Milman Djokovic. Or, you know, they could put Nishikori Cilic as the night match now. Yeah, I think the trade-off is really... Federer or not Federer. That's what a lot of yeah. a lot of the New York tennis fans are voting on. Um, yeah, and that that that's something we can come back to as well. But uh, we'll see if we have time for that. Um, yeah, there's been a little chatter about what drives the ticket prices at the U.S. Open and gender differences and stuff like that. And I would like to talk about it. I just want to make sure we cover the actual tennis first. Um, the other big, well, I don't even know if upset is the right word at this point. The, the other big result last night was Maria Sharapova's loss to Carlos Suarez Navarro. And Carl, I, I believe you're with me in being a big Suarez Navarro fan with the one-handed backhand. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I like to hear. And 
mean, Sharapova hasn't been great this year. She's around number 20 in the rankings. Uh, her last title was almost a year ago. Uh, I think she made the quarters at Roland Garros, but hasn't really gone gone too deep much of anywhere else. Uh, still, you would expect Sharapova to, to bring her best on a stage like this. I think this is her first ever loss under the under the lights in Ash. Is that right? That's a stat yeah. I saw. Um, are you given given this combination of facts? You know, we've got the fact that Sharapova is obviously not her past self, but also the fact that Sharapova usually does really show up in these marquee matches. Are you surprised by this result? Yeah, only moderately, because as you point out, she hasn't gone deep in too many tournaments, and she's not. I, I think she's treated by tournaments. As a big, she's treated as if she were a top three player, top three prospect to win tournaments in terms of scheduling. But I think that's just trading on her name and her reputation and her impressive career results, five slam titles. But she hasn't been a real threat. It's not to say I specifically expected she'd lose a night match to Suarez Navarro, but it seems like she can lose to just about anyone. Um, which isn't to say she's bad. She's she's earned that ranking, but she's not a top WTA contender these days. Yeah, what interests me about this now, and this might turn into a a blog post on Tennis Abstract, is is for for a long time we were talking about Sharapova in comeback mode. So she came back from her uh, Meldonium suspension last April in Stuttgart, I believe, and then. Almost immediately, she was out with injury, but then she came back. She came back strong at the U.S. Open. That was her first good slam um, since coming back. Maybe her only slam, actually, main draw since she, since she came back. Since the French Open didn't give her a wild card, and then she sat out Wimbledon with an injury. So U.S. Open was her first one last year. She knocked out Halep in the first round in a pretty memorable match, and then she lost to Savastova in another really memorable match, a close one there. And that looked to be a turning point. That was that was the even though she lost, it was that this is the Maria is back moment, and she hasn't really followed that up. So we can no longer say she's struggling to get back on her feet. Now it looks like this is the player she is. I think we talked about this in one of our podcasts earlier in 2018 when she was still sort of in comeback mode, and and. I think you had recently talked to Nick Boletari, who had, who had told you that you can never count out Maria Sharapova. I was a bit skeptical about that. How do you feel about that now, Carl? Do you still feel like Maria Sharapova is a threat? Basically, do you think that she's a threat at a level beyond what her ranking says she is right now? No, I mean, I, I think... We could say so if she had a particularly tough schedule or if she had a limited schedule so she didn't, her point total wasn't out of a potential point total of the other players. But no, I think now she's a tour regular and to use an expression that I uh, can't stand, she is what what she is. She is what her <laughs> ranking says she is. Um, she she's a, she's, a, she's a great tennis player, but not one of the 10 biggest threats at, at majors and maybe not one of the 15 or 20. At the 2019 U.S. Open, who's a bigger threat, Maria Sharapova or Kaya Kanepi? 
Well, you've chose specifically the U.S. Open, so I think we have to go with Kanepi right now. I mean, we have to give them both credit. They, well, so Halep was not number one at last year's U.S. Open. Was she, was she number one? Who Who is ranked number one at last year's U.S. Open? I'm not sure. It, you're right. It wasn't Halep. I believe she was number two. I think you're faster navigating my site than I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. But, you know, she knocked out one of the top two players at last year's U.S. Open, and this year Kanepi knocked out Halep. So both both have had good results at the U.S. Open the last two years. And um, Kanepi is, I believe, a couple years older than Sharapova. So I guess Sharapova is the bigger threat next year. Although you gotta, you got to say, Kanepi took a set from Serena, and how often has Sharapova done that? Yes, not often. <laughs> not often. So I want to jump a, a few items ahead on, on our outline for today since we're talking about Kanepi. We have Kaya Kanepi who got to the quarterfinals last year, got to the round of 16 with this huge upset this year as well, even challenging Serena. We also have Savastava who got to the quarterfinals last year with some big wins, uh, almost knocked out Sloane Stevens in a great match last year. And here she is again, upset Alina Svitolina in the quarterfinals again, these are not people you would expect to be making runs at the U.S. Open in back-to-back years. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Sevastova fan. I watch her play whenever I can, but I'm not a believer in the sense that I think that she's, she's a lot better than her current ranking of 12 or 15 or whatever it is now. So what do you think is going on in these cases where players seem to have a certain mojo at certain tournaments? I mean, is it is it just luck that, you know, we're going to see this just by chance, or is there something deeper going on? Yeah, I, I uh, this is me guessing at the result of the eventual Jeff Sackman study of this question. I think probably on the margins there is something real for some players where something about the tournament really agrees with them. Maybe they schedule so that they get there far enough in, in advance to get used to the time zone and the conditions and the courts. Maybe it's just confidence. Players say all the time that confidence is incredibly important. It certainly looked that way with Millman last night, that a, as he had a good result, he, he built on it. Um, so that could be what's happening with Sevastova and Kanepi, but... I, I would not be surprised if a study showed, no, this this happens to about as many players at events as you would expect. So many players play so many events for many years that you would expect some to consistently do well at one event just by random chance. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I'm not sure whether this can even be known is the... I don't know, we, we talked once about micro ELOs because I found that grass court ELOs were particularly predictive, which and I would have expected the reverse. The idea being that if you if you know a lot more about a specific surface rather than just grouping all hard courts or all clay courts together, then you can make better predictions. And it's more likely that US Open last year is basically the same surface as US Open this year than US Open this year is to Cincinnati this year or Montreal this year or any other tournament. So it's always possible that there's something really specific, maybe not even identifiable with the analytical tools we have, that it just works with certain players' games. 
Uh, I mean, in this case, maybe it's the humidity. I think I, I have found a, a decent correlation between Cincinnati results and New York results, and the, the climates at those two events are usually pretty similar. So, yeah, that that could be it, but, but you're right. I think chance plays a big part. We just always highlight these examples when they come out and because they're always when someone is successful two years in a row then it's it's an automatic story i mean it's a story simply because they're successful at all but then it's a little bit more of a story or a more memorable story because they're defending a quarterfinal or something like that um the one other thing i want to say about kanepi before moving back to the men's half of the draw is it, it, it She's a great example of the weirdness and the limitations of the 52-week ranking system. So Kanepi is defending a quarterfinal from the U.S. Open. She's ranked in the 40s somewhere right now, 47 or something, and has this amazing tournament, beats Simona Halep, gets to the fourth round, takes a set off Serena. Some of those things are irrelevant to the ranking system, but great week, far exceeds any expectations of an unseated player. But because she fails to defend her quarterfinal from last year, and because the quarterfinal points are so great, she's going to drop 10 points in the rankings. That seems totally wrong to me. I mean, it's certainly wrong in terms of whether the WTA rankings are reflective of how someone is playing right now or predictive in some way. So I don't want to belabor the point. If you want to belabor the point, there's lots of stuff on my blog that goes into this in, in great detail and every other rating system besides the the 52 week versions are are better in this regard they might have other weaknesses but they're they're better and they don't have a they don't go from counting a tournament 100 percent one week to counting it zero percent the next week like the 52 week ranking system does but that's all i have to say about that mini rant over carl i want Wait, to talk about thought. yeah yeah go ahead i think we all agree where we all you and i <laughs> and presumably many listeners agree that the 52 week ranking system doesn't feel fair in a moment like this and also doesn't feel like a accurate assessment of a player's current level and is is not very predictive when it doesn't bump Kanepi up for beating the number one player and reaching the fourth round i think it also there's something kind of fundamental about fandom that it violates that people want to go to the open or go to any tournament and feel like what they just saw matters. And it's such a big tournament that even a big fourth round result may be forgotten by the semis if that player, you know, loses routinely in the quarters, which could happen with John Millman. And I was riding home after the the late finish to Milman Federer. And my friend was like, oh, does this hurt Federer a lot in the rankings? And I think the answer feels like it should. It was a big upset. It was to a player outside the top 50. It was much earlier than we expect Roger to to lose. But he had reached only one round further last year. So this is a, a drop of 180 points, which to him is not that big a drop. He's still guaranteed to be number two at the end of the, the Open. So... The answer is kind of a disappointing no, and I think you you want to to say this means something more than just this one result at this one tournament, and the fifty two week system doesn't always deliver that. Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm not sure if we've talked about this on the podcast, but I've written about this before, and we've talked about it offline. Is uh, I think the race should be a bigger deal 
you know, people talk about the race leading up to the tour finals because that's what determines tour finals entry. But in any other sport, I, I think there are probably exceptions, but in virtually any other sport, there, the standings are based on a race. I mean, in, in team sports, every team starts at 0-0. Zero, zero. So it's not, it wouldn't be that weird to have players start at 0 going into the Australian swing. You would have some weird results for a while. I mean, if, if Kevin Anderson wins the Australian Open, then he's going to be number one in the race. But, I mean, people will know he's not really the best player in the world. He deserves to be number one in the race at that point. So people would, would adjust to it. And that would also free up the entry rankings, entry rating system to be something smarter and more subtle. And I think that's the problem, is that this whole the 52-week system is built to compromise between two worlds, being something exciting that fans can follow and being something intelligent to determine who should enter each tournament. And in trying to do both, it does neither. So the, the simple solution is, is highlight the race. And to your point about it not really affecting Federer in the rankings, I think I saw that because of this loss, Federer will fall to number three in the race behind Djokovic. So it doesn't kill him. But, you know, he's had a great year. He's one of the top players on tour, no question about that. But it does knock him down a rung. And that's something that won't happen in the rankings. So so the race is is a bit more valuable in that regard. Yep. More dynamic, changes more, especially earlier in the year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it would give Kanepi credit for having an awesome week last week. So... Switching back to the men's draw, big match today is Rafa Nadal against Dominic Team. Uh, Team is, I don't know, somewhere between a bit of a surprise and a huge surprise to be here. I mean, we, you and I were sitting together watching Team beat Mirza Basic in the first round and joking about how he was going to manage to lose this match or when he was going to lose. And he didn't. And then he didn't in his next three matches, knocking out Kevin Anderson in the fourth round. So, by just about any measure, this is a great tournament for him on his second best surface. I believe this is the first time Nadal and team have played on a hard court, which is pretty remarkable given how many times they have faced off on clay. So, Carl, do you think that the surface has the potential of making this closer? No, I mean, I guess we're supposed to think Rafa is weaker because he's off clay, but team is a lot weaker when he's off clay. No. He's had a good tournament. It was a really good win against Anderson. And he does seem to be playing more like he's playing on a hard court. And by that, I mean standing closer to the baseline, maybe flattening out more shots. But I still think Nadal is a bridge too far for him. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if we didn't expect him to get this far, we don't expect him to knock out one of the favorites in the quarterfinals, especially someone who knows his game well and has figured out how to beat him. Um, so on Nadal, he's pretty clearly the favorite in the top half. Djokovic is pretty clearly the favorite in the bottom half. We've been talking about who's going to be the favorite in the U.S. Open since, I don't know, Toronto or something, maybe even before. If we'd been recording podcasts during Wimbledon, we probably would have talked about it then. At this point, what do you think? Is one of them the clear favorite in your eyes? Yeah, I still like Djokovic. I'd like it sounds like you had to think about it. I'm, I'm still in favor of which one again? Well, I I was hesitating, although I couldn't 
undo the part where I said I still, so I had to say Djokovic. But I was hesitating just because I was thinking through their draws for a second. But yeah, I think I think Djokovic has a slightly easier path given that, well, we just discount a team. He's still a top 10 opponent. And Nadal could then get Del Potro in the semis. Whereas Djokovic gets Milman and then Jolichur Nishikori. Um, so I, I think he has a better chance to reach the final. And then on hard courts, I would pretty much always pick him over Rafa. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, the, the Jeff, the blogger behind First Ball In, another good tennis blog you should check out. He commented this morning that he'd seen a couple different systems, including Stephanie Kowalczyk's from the Tennis Australia group, that favored Nadal at this point. And by a decent margin, I think something like 35% to 25% or 40 to 30 or something like that. And my system has it in the reverse. And it, it might depend on how much you weight surface results. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the difference is since these these are all ELO-based systems, so they, they should track each other reasonably closely. Maybe mine is a little bit more sensitive to Djokovic's recent results because he was absent for a while. I'm not sure what the what the difference is, but it, it, it is interesting to see uh, methods that should be reasonably similar coming out with opposite results. But my eyes tell me it's it's Djokovic's title to lose, uh, and and you're right, he has a sl- slightly easier draw at this point, and that looked really strong in Cincinnati. What about on the women's side? This is this has been in a tremendous amount of flux. I think my my model had Simona as the favorite, and then she lost. Then it had Svitolina as the favorite, and then she lost. Then it had Arena Sabalenka as the favorite after she beat Kvitova, and of course she has lost now. So now it, it has Serena as the favorite. Uh, Serena has a, a tougher draw. She plays Pliskova in the quarters, and then she could get Sloane Stevens in the semifinals. Despite that, do you see her as the favorite at this point? Narrowly, yes. She's, who do you think? She's looked really you, good, and go ahead. Uh, who do you think the second favorite is, if, if it's narrow? Well, I should probably say the highest-ranked remaining player and defending champ, Sloane Stevens. The trendy pick around... The Open, it felt like yesterday, after she narrowly beat Sabalenka, was Osaka, who gets yeah, Serenka. Yeah, that sounds like a trendy pick. <laughs> <laughs> she, does get, she does get the only unseeded player left in the quarters, so she at least has a pretty good draw to the semis. And then, you know, there, there are no top ten players left in that half of the draw. But it would make more sense to favor Madison Keys in that half than to favor Osaka, Keys being the defending finalist. So if it comes down to Serena Stevens in in the semifinal, you think that goes Serena? Yeah, but not with a ton of confidence. And how do you feel about Osaka as the trendy pick? The very fact that you called it out as a trendy pick makes me sense a little bit of doubt. What do you think Osaka's chances of, I don't know, let's say making it to the final are? Oh, getting to the final? Probably... 25%, maybe 30%. Really? Yeah, so I mean, she has to win second. two matches, and she's probably the big favorite in her next match. The big favorite over the woman who beat Marketa Vondrosheva? And Caroline Wozniacki, but yes. You oh, yeah, so. sure. 
Okay. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is still make for some interesting matches. We have the Serena Pliskova rematch. Um, and I, I feel like, to me, almost every match Sloane Stevens plays is teaching us something about you know, how good she is, what she can do, what maybe her limitations are. Um, even though she's been around for, it, it seems like a really, really long time, and been someone that pundits have talked about for equally long, I feel... It does feel like a new Sloan. This is the first time, and clearly the first time she's defending a Grand Slam title. Um, I mean, she's a really interesting player, and we still haven't gotten a sense of what to expect on a, a match-to-match basis. So, uh, I don't know. She, she's the most interesting player left in the draw to me. I don't know if she's my favorite. I, I'm, I wouldn't peg her as the favorite. I think you have to give that nod to Serena, but definitely the one to watch in my view. We're being a little risky by talking so much about those two. They could both be out by the time people listen to this. But uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet on that. But they could. Yeah. Well, it, if we're talking about the WTA this Grand Slam season, you really can't have a conversation without taking those risks. Um, to me, that makes it super fun. But I, I understand people don't like it. I don't get what their problem is. But let's wrap that up and bring us that much closer to finishing the podcast and releasing it before these people lose. Uh, I just finished charting the Marin Chilich Alex Dimonor match. That I don't, at this point, would you say, Carl, that's the match of the tournament? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, certainly I on the men's side. Is there a women's match that sticks out? Hmm. Okay, I guess the match of the tournament. I mean, I thought no, I, I thought Osaka Sabalenka was was solid. Um, yeah, I, I, it's probably Chilich Dimonor. Um, Sabalenka Kvitova had some entertaining stuff, and I haven't yet watched it, but I'm I'm very interested to watch the Burton's Vondrosheva match. That oh yeah, yeah, I wrote something about that yesterday and it was it, it was like a, a super lottery match so Vondrusheva won fewer points fewer return points broke serve less often hit fewer aces more double faults I think she hit fewer winners and more unforced errors as well and still she won that match in a third set tie break so yeah I got got to see that coupled with the fact that Kiki Burton's is someone that we highlighted just five days ago in our last podcast as a, a serious threat in the bottom half so now she's out, and the player who beat her, Vondrosheva, is out as well. So we got here, because I wanted to talk about Dimonor, so let's circle back there. He's out, obviously. Chilich is still in. It was a, a great five-set match. Dimonor, he saved seven match points in the fifth set, uh, came back from a 5-2 deficit in the fifth, forced it to 5-5, and then ended up losing 7-5, although saved another match point on the way. And this year has been one giant coming out party for him. He played a couple great Davis Cup matches early in the season. Uh, He's been consistently threatening throughout the year. He reached a final in Washington, won a a thriller against Andrei Rublev, and then lost in the final to Alex Verev. So great year. The fact that he's closely linked with Leighton Hewitt makes him even more interesting to, to tennis writers and fans. And he's 19. So I want to talk about how big of a prospect that makes him. And I was just looking at the the rankings by age, and he's one of five guys in the top 50 in under 21, I believe. So you've got 
Demonur, Shapovalov, Tsitsipas, Tiafo, and Rublev. Uh, how do you think Demonur compares to those other four guys? I think he has the clearest plan of what he wants to do in a given point in a given match. And that makes him such a tough opponent and such an unlikely teenager because that seems like something that usually comes together later. That could break the other way where if he's tactically sound and mentally sound, maybe it's harder to improve the rest of the game. I don't know. Because uh, there's certainly things that could stand to improve in his game, but he's 5'11 and, and pretty slim, and I, I guess he could bulk up and, and add some power, but he he might sort of max out if we've already seen the the smartest that demon are that there is to see. Yeah, I, I would agree, and... I've been thinking about the same the same concern that you mentioned that okay if if you're comparing two players where you've got one who's already tactically very sound, very smart, like has a well-developed game and you're comparing him to someone else who has bigger tools, maybe a a better you know 21st century tennis body. So um, I don't know, maybe a comparison is, is Demonor with Rublev. I'm not sure if he's the best one of these five to pick out in that category. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know where where you put your money going forward. Is Because yeah, there's room to improve on both sides. The question is, are you going to improve? I think the track record of smaller guys is probably not as good. I mean, people were fanatical about Donald Young for years, well past the point where they probably should have been. And I, I think Demonor is already a smarter player than Donald Young ever has been. But there's there's something to that comp, I think. Uh, whereas there are players who don't strike anyone as particularly tactically sound or intelligent, who by virtue of having a really big game and being six four and hitting 130 mile an hour serves, have certainly climbed higher than Demonor has so far. So yeah, it's 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 a tough balance to strike. I mean, do you think there's much room for Demonor to? I mean, obviously he can get he can get stronger, he can hit bigger serves. Do you think there's much room for him to improve in that regard? Yeah, I do think the filling out his frame could help quite a bit. On the other hand, there's only so big a serve you can hit just geometrically at five eleven. I guess he could learn more. Variety, but I, you know, I think his serve is already pretty good for his size, and he could probably improve, especially his backhand. But I don't know. I think he already seems to have pretty well developed game, and you know, he he's someone where probably you you want to credit his his coaching and training quite a bit for what he's already able to do um yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see how players adjust to playing against him it looked like Chilich was not ready for all that Demonar can can kind of throw at you in a match and then when Chilich ad- adjusted 
it's not that demon art necessarily started playing poorly or playing dumbly or getting affected by heat or or by just the length of the match it just looked more like that's that he had maxed out yeah um, yeah and that'll be interesting to see as you point out whether whether players adjust and I think it's an open question how much players can adjust to to sort of defeat the uh, I don't know what the best way to put this is like the the breakout rookie year and I think conventional wisdom is that it happens a lot that a player will have this big year and then word gets around the locker room or something about how to beat them and then they struggle uh, I'm not convinced that's as big a factor as as people seem to think it is but maybe something like that goes on maybe it's just that players individually figure out how to how to beat guys like Demon Or and maybe in a five set match then maybe Chilich had enough time to do that if if they'd been playing in Cincinnati best of three then maybe we'd be talking about an upset at this point and that would be another uh, another jewel in Demon Nor's crown this year um, thinking about these five prospects I'm really interested in this in this group of Demon Nor Shapovalov Sitsipas Tiafo and Rublev especially. The, the Tiafo comparison since I saw them, Dimonor and Tiafo play in the second round. But of these five, uh, Sitsipas is the clear leader at this point in the in the top 20. But once all these years' results are off the board, end of the year 2019, who do you think is going to be the highest ranked of the five? I think Dimonor. Really? Yeah. Despite everything that, we just said. That is a big call right there. Yeah. I think he's going to get into every tournament, and he's still not like through, through as much of the ATP field, and he's just so tour-ready. Do you know that is at least partly the logic you use to justify a prediction of Tennis Sandgren in the year-end top 30? Which he could still make. <laughs> He's in the quarterfinals of the men, men's doubles. How does that affect the singles rankings again? Under my system when I'm in charge? Okay. Very much. Very much. We do want to talk about doubles in, in just a minute. So you're picking... Huh. You're picking Demon or what? Where would you put his ranking at the end of the year, 2019? 25. I think Tsitsipas takes a step back. I mean, I think we, we talked about it on the show that... I, I felt like his run to the final was fluky and that he's not quite ready and he, he won some matches he should have lost. Yeah, that's true. I can see him taking a step back. Uh, the flip side of that is since he's now ranked 15 or something and will have most of that ranking, almost all of it, through Barcelona next year, he'll not only be... He'll, he'll be able to enter everywhere, which wasn't the case this year. He'll be seated everywhere, which wasn't the case for most of this year. And he'll have a decent seating in a lot of places. I mean, he'll, he'll be a top 16 seed in Australia, probably. Uh, that's, that's a big advantage, I think. I don't know whether that's enough to push him, to keep him in the top 25, but that is a consideration. Uh, and what about, what about Tiafo? I'm, I'm, I've been fascinated with Tiafo's long-term prospects for a long time. And I think now he's ranked 42 or something. Maybe he gained a couple points for the U.S. Open win. I'm not sure. But where do you see him a year and a couple months from now? Yeah, I guess if I said Demonar at 25, then it's a little strange for him to be the first in this group, given where everyone is now. 
so, someone you would think would improve more. But I think Tiafo is probably still around 40 in a year because I think he also is the recipient of some slightly fluky points this year. And yeah, just in in the matches I've seen him, I haven't seen a, a game that's that's sharp enough. I'm not going to say like polished enough or classical enough because I, I love that he he plays differently, but... I think he just makes too many errors of, of judgment and execution. Yeah, I, the the comp that springs to mind is Sanga, and maybe maybe that's a little bit too optimistic for a career peak for Tiafo, since Sanga got, I forget how what his career high is, but five or six or something. I'm not sure if I want to predict that for Tiafo, but similarly, huge game, um, fun to watch, easy to predict great things from just maybe we won't see them. So I don't know that I, I would agree. I, I don't think Tiafo's there yet. So the tougher question then, since I've asked you increasingly difficult questions for a while now, is of these five guys, who do you think has the highest career peak? Shapovalov. Really? And where do you think his career peak ranking is? You keep saying really, Jeff, but I'm not hearing your predictions. <laughs> uh, maybe on this one we'll hear them. Uh, two. Wow, that is a that is a high predict. I guess that it's it's tough to. I don't know. I'm not even sure what a what an algorithm would spit out for for this sort of thing. Um. Yeah, I. I it, it's kind of tough based on what you said about Demonor being 25 in a year because if you, if you were to build a model to predict all these guys, then it probably wouldn't give you a result of much higher than 20 for any of them. Like maybe it would, it might give us 25, 30, 35, 40, and 45 for these guys. Maybe somebody would be a little a little bit lower, um, but that's just because for any individual player, it's tough to forecast a, a really big leap or a really big drop-off. If you were to predict all five at once, let's say, and like who the highest of the five would be, you might get a higher result than any the best specific player. So I don't know if you could build an algorithm to say who's going to, what's the peak rank of these five guys next year? You know, the model might spit out 12 or something, but it doesn't know who is going to be the number 12. So it has to be more moderate with the other ones and the same thing is true with career high rankings like I, i've played around with it a little bit but it's it's a tough thing to do because of that very problem like if, if you're looking at somebody who's 19 and whose peak ranking thus far is 45 or something then a model is going to tell you that his ranking is going to going to go up but it, it knows about the people who turned into federer or nadal or whatever but it also knows about the people who didn't. So it's going to give you a weighted average of, I don't know, eight maybe. And it would be really tough to build a model for any specific player that's going to give you a ranking much higher than that, I'm guessing. Uh, The only way you'd get something higher is if you modeled the entire tour and it had to give you somebody at number two. Like, I mean, some of these guys are going to have to be in the top five, right? I mean, our current our, our current favorites are going to retire. Zverev's going to be number one for a while, probably. Some other people will stick around. But, I mean, there's going to be a time that this cohort has to 
show something. I mean, even even Dimitrov was number four for a while, and he's the the king of the lost generation. Um, so to you, Carl Shapo's number two. What do you think the peak Sitsipas rating is? Six. Six. And then what do you think peak Tiafo is? Eighteen. Wow, that's pessimistic for Tiafo. You, you ha, are you giving up your American passport? <laughs> Did you? Because I think you're lower on American players than I am. Yeah, maybe. I I do think Tiafo will get higher than eighteen. Although I'm not sure if I would say top ten. Although I'm also the person who's I think written articles about how many people have made it into the top ten, like the the presently retiring Mikhail Eugenie, among others. Um, I think your favorite example was Tipsarevich. Oh, I've, it, he's he's not only my favorite example, he's such a great example that I forgot. Uh, <laughs> I, the one with him, my favorite example. Yeah, he, he not only is the best example because he's the most anonymous player to crack the top 10, but he stayed there for a long time. As opposed to Juan Monaco, who's the other example from that group. Yeah, he's a fantastic example as well. Uh, yeah, I think Tipsarevich was there for more than a year, and he got to number eight. So, yeah, Jeff, go Tipsarevich. Can you yeah. think, you mentioned that if you had an algorithm trying to to model players' peak rankings, it would know about Federer and Nadal and where they were at 19 and that they both got to number one, but it would, it would also know about the guys who didn't come close or, or ever improved. Is there anyone in particular who who comes to mind recently or otherwise who would be in that second group? Um, or maybe they don't come to mind because they didn't pan out. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've I've done any of this and I don't think it's top 50. I think I was looking at top 100, but the the names that really stick out to me are one of them is Donald Young. I don't think he was quite this high this early and if he was, it was heavily wildcard driven but the other name and this is top 100 not top 50 is Evgeny Korolev who was I wouldn't say he was a major prospect but people in the know knew about Korolev and they were predicting great things from Korolev and I think he's still 27 and kicking around the futures tour but nothing good happened there so that's a good question and it also the fact that there aren't a lot of great examples on the men's side of 19-year-olds who, or teenagers in general, even 20-year-olds who got this high this fast. Um, the the problem is, is it, we don't have that many years when 19 or 20 is this young, in a way of speaking. Um, because if you, if you use the entire open era, or even just the last 25, 30 years as your data set, you have players who are winning slams at 19 or 20. And... We don't have a lot of those anymore. So there, there are quite a few guys over the, the last 30 years of tennis history who got broke into the top 50 as a 20-year-old and didn't, didn't become an all-time great, let's say. Um, but at the same time, the game is different now than it is then. So being 19 in 2018 is a very different proposition than being 19 in 1993, let's say. And there are probably ways of handling that, but it it makes the whole operation a lot more complex than it is to measure aging curves in, let's say, baseball. As we speak about Tiafo, he was just named to the U.S. Davis Cup team for the semifinals. Okay. Is that controversial or surprising? 
Yeah, based on ranking, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, usually the U.S. team goes at least pretty close to on ranking. So it's Isner and Tiafo, and then oh, and that's Isner is not on the team. Oh, okay. Well, that definitely opens up a spot right there. Uh, is Sock playing singles? They haven't announced who's playing what, but Sock's on the team. Yeah. Okay, I guess he's the he's the new Bob Bryan at the very least. Yeah, and I thought uh, the Bryans had retired, but Mike was named to the team, so maybe it was Bob who had, excuse me, had retired from Davis Cup, and Mike's on the team, so maybe Bob had driven that decision and Mike's game to play. Yeah, that could be. Maybe they're also just taking advantage of the the very last chance to play real Davis Cup. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I wanted to briefly touch on that. It's it, it's a weird thing going on in a couple of weeks that we have the Davis Cup semifinals, but we also have the usual world group playoffs, uh, which basically don't matter, right? I mean, in, in the new format, there's 18 teams. So that includes everyone in the world group and everyone in group one, I think. So doesn't the world group have 16 teams? Oh, I'm thinking of Fed Cup. You're right. Fed Cup has, World Group 1 only has eight teams, but you're right, World Group has 16. So maybe it does matter. Okay. It's not totally pointless. I just saw there's a there's a pretty good tie in Austria, between Australia and Austria. Um, Kyrgios isn't playing, but Damon Noor will be there. Dominic Team should be there. So some potentially interesting tennis happening there. Uh, also, Jurgen Meltzer playing doubles, probably. Another one of the surprising top tenors. Oh, yeah. Um, we had a couple of other wonky topics on the agenda for today, but I don't think we really have time to touch on them. Um, Carl, you've been able to spend a lot of time in the Open. Is there anything else that you think we should talk about before we close up shop for this week? I think liking doubles gives people an incredible competitive advantage at tournaments because, wow, can you get close up. I, I was in the the front row, not, not using a credential, just walking down in the front row behind the baseline for Jamie Murray and Bethany Maddox-Sands winning a very tight mixed doubles match yesterday. And... If if you if you like singles, you're rushing with everybody else to get a, a seat really far from the court, waiting in long lines. So I, I'm not telling everyone to like doubles. I'm just saying, <laughs> in fact, continue to not like doubles for people like me who do because it, it really opens things up. Yeah, that's a good note to end on. Um, I totally agree. Doubles is super entertaining, especially live and. Lots of great players in the mix. So, someone is honking it, in agreement. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, it's New York. What do you expect? Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's only seven or eight listeners of this podcast. So, that, that's our our tip to you, our close friends, listeners of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. So, yeah, that's a, a great note to wrap it up on. I hope, Carl. I hope you enjoy the rest of the tournament. Should be some great matches. Thanks, Jeff. You um, too. Listeners, thank you for joining us as always. Hope you enjoy the rest of the tournament as well. And hopefully we'll be here in about a week to wrap things up, tell you what happened, and maybe dig into those super wonky topics that we couldn't make time for this week. So 
Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you then.